The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. O Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word, amen. It's become kind of a commonplace, unfortunately, even in these last few weeks, uh, that my children have begun to tell me that I've broken a promise. I've lied to them. For example, one day this past week, as we tried to exit the dining hall at Concord Academy, where my wife teaches, we encountered the usual mulish, stubborn resistance to leaving. They wanted to continue, understandably, to play with their friends after dinner. Well, to grease the wheels of our escape, we pointed out to them that, well, we can come here tomorrow night and eat here, and you can play with your friends again tomorrow night after dinner. And it worked this time. However, the following afternoon, after I picked them up from school, one of them eventually noticed that I had turned to drive toward home, not toward the dining hall. A phone conversation with my wife had confirmed that she really wasn't feeling very well and we really needed to eat at home that night and, and not at the dining hall. So as, I, as they clambered up into the car, my kids, um, and I pulled away from school, I had hoped that they would forget the promise that we had made to them the night before, but no such luck. Hey, Daddy, one of them piped up, you said we could go to the dining hall tonight. Well, our circumstances have changed a little bit. Mommy's not feeling so well, so we really need to go home tonight and not eat at the dining hall. To which they retorted, you promised, and now you've broken your promise. You lied. As we know, the sense of justice among children can be very finely honed. And it's gotten me to thinking about 
the importance and the centrality of promises in our lives, especially the promises that we make with people that are most important to us, and especially the promises that we make to God. And what better time than in Lent to examine the promises that we make with one another and with God and to see just how well we're doing in those promises. I don't need to tell you that we're in a time in our history in this country and actually around the world where broken relationships are everywhere. We see them, of course, in the personal tragedies and heartaches that happen in normal times, but especially now as they're connected with the larger ruptured relationships of trust that we have in the American dream. That dream that says we'll always have a job, there'll always be upward mobility, we'll always have a house, there'll be endless, endlessly profitable economic times as far as the eye can see, a secure retirement based on years of hard work and careful saving, not to mention profligate greed on the part of the few. This dream is fading, if not already gone. You may have seen the recent cover of Time magazine, not, not this week's, but last week's. There are these two hands like this, holding on to a rope that has just one slender strand left. And the caption is, holding on for dear life. So our relationship of trust with uh, our economic system, with our promises of continual economic prosperity, have been ruptured, broken. And I would say that our relationship with the state, with our government, is also at a turning point. How much can we depend on our government to take care of, to look after the least and most vulnerable of those among us? Can it bring justice to those institutions and peoples who brought us to this point, but making sure that they don't fail completely so as to bring even more people into desperation and ruin. Well, perhaps there's a silver lining. The implicit expectation that these dreams of our economy, of our state of limitless prosperity and endless security, perhaps it's a silver lining that they have been exposed for the idols that they are. They cannot, do not, will not sustain us or our souls. But how do we recover from the breakdown of our idols, from the rupturing of these relationships that we had put so much trust in? How do we recover? Well, a few of us from Trinity went yesterday down to a really amazing event down at Boston University sponsored by the Episcopal Diocese. And the featured speaker there was an amazing church leader by the name of Brian McLaren. And he said a lot of amazing things, um, which I can't all repeat for you now, although certainly some of them are seeping into what I have to say this morning. What I will share with you is a very telling observation that he made about the phrase economic recovery and the way that we might think about that. One way we might think about recovery 
is trying to get back to that insane bubble of prosperity, so-called, of excess, of rolling good times. We want to get back there and recover up back to that point. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at recovery is what happens, perhaps, after an addict hits rock bottom and decides, well, maybe I need a relationship with a higher power to get me through. The chief rabbi of Great Britain, Jonathan Sachs, puts it in a slightly different way. Economics and politics, the market and the state, are about the logic of competition. Power and wealth rule. In these relationships, there are winners and losers. And these forces have been the dominant narrative over at least the last 50 years. You can probably go back even farther than that, but at least the last 50. And they are tearing apart the fabric of humanity. How are we going to recover from that? Well, there's a different kind of relationship that God, that God offers as an alternative to relationships of power and wealth and competition, of winners and losers. And recovery begins there, here, for us. That relationship is called a covenant. Again, to paraphrase Rabbi Sack of Great Britain, a covenant is a relationship based on love, on trust, on friendship, on influence. Covenants are based on cooperation, not competition. In contrast to a contract, which are based on interests, a covenant is based on an identity of people coming together to form an us rather than a collection of eyes, of pledging faithfulness to achieve together what we could never, ever do alone. Contracts benefit, but covenants transform. They transform. Throughout the story of God's people in the Bible, I think we can see that. That the covenant, the covenants, is the kind of relationship, or the kinds of relationships that God has offered to humanity. The word covenant appears in the Hebrew Bible over 250 times. And in the New Testament, about 30 times. And this morning we see one of the pivotal covenants in the story that we all share. In the Hebrew Bible lesson this morning, the God of the universe says to Abraham and Sarah, You matter. You matter. You are precious. You are my treasure. Together, we will be a blessing. Not just to you. Not just to me. But to the whole world. Forever. We see a slightly different understanding of covenant in the gospel lesson this morning. I would say discipleship is a form of covenant with an emphasis on a learning component, I would say. 
This covenant clearly also can uh, include suffering. Clearly includes suffering, as does the Hebrew Bible covenant, but Jesus seems to emphasize it here in this reading and in the, in the Gospel of Mark. This covenant uh, does include suffering, but it leads to life, real life, long-term life, forever life. Now, I want to point out a very important aspect of these covenants, and that is that covenants make it safe to disagree, to argue, to make mistakes, and yet still remain connected, joined, in relationship, not abandoning one another. For example, in the case of Abraham, a few chapters after the story that we just heard, Abraham and God have a little discussion. God is getting ready to wipe Sodom off the face of the earth, dust to dust. And Abraham says, will you destroy the good along with the wicked? What if there are 50 people who are good there? And God says, well, okay, for 50 I won't do it. And then Abraham says, well, what about 45? And God says, okay, I'll spare 45. Well, what about 40? Abraham comes back, sure, 40. 35? And so forth. All the way down to 10. So in the covenant that Abraham and Sarah have with God, there is room for argument, for give and take. That's so important to remember in our relationship with one another, if they're covenant relationships, in our relationship with God. In the gospel passage this morning, Peter and Jesus have a rather dramatic exchange, I would say. It comes just a few verses after Peter has said, you are the Christ. He said, I'm, I'm with you. I'm in this covenant with you. I'm with you, and I know you are with me. They've joined together in a covenant. Well, then Jesus starts talking this crazy talk about suffering. And Peter says, wait a minute. That's not, that can't be really what you mean. And he, the, the word we get in the, in the passage today is he rebukes Jesus. Strong word. And then Jesus, in return, rebukes Peter for not getting it for being a stumbling block to his message. Well, it's interesting to note that the Greek word that we translate as Hebrew, one of the primary meanings is to honor. To honor. So in this conversation between Peter and Jesus, they're actually honoring each other by showing their disagreement, by showing, by allowing the conflict to come forth. Knowing that their covenant, or we know that their covenant, Peter might not be so sure, we know that their covenant remains intact. It remains strong. It remains powerful. And so, I think we need to ask ourselves during this time of Lent, where are we? In our covenants. Where are we putting our trust? In whom or what are we putting our trust? 
How are our relationships where we have promised fidelity, where we've promised trust, where we've promised sharing, where we've promised to sacrifice ourselves for a greater good, to sacrifice our misguided hopes for a greater good, those misguided hopes that may undermine the us that we've promised to create when we enter into a covenant? How are we caring for the weak and the poor among us? We promised to do that in the baptismal covenant. In fact, if we were to look at pages 416 and 417 in our prayer book, how would we do if we went through those line by line and were honest with ourselves and with God about how we're doing? Covenants are not without cost. Significant ones often. Life and death costs. And Jesus tells us this. He warns us, warns us about this. But despite the cost, despite what we, what we may sacrifice and do sacrifice, God will never, ever withhold God's self from us. God simply will not go away. God won't do it. God says, you are my treasure. You are my precious, precious creation. I love you. And you can't change it. For Christians, we see this in the life of Jesus. We see that God does not break covenant. We see this in the cross. We see that God does not break covenant. We see this in the resurrection. We see that God does not break covenant. We see it in the coming of the Holy Spirit. God does not break God's covenant. God keeps promises. We may do fail to keep our promises. And other people do fail to keep promises. Our family and friends may walk away. Our banks may walk away. Our pensions may walk away. Our governments may break their trust with us. God does not break promises. God can't. He cares for us too much. That relationship cannot be broken. We can step outside of it. We can choose to move away from it. But God remains faithful. God stands constantly ready to be in covenant relationships with us. In the bread and the wine. In the stories of scripture as they intertwine with our own lives. In the community gathered around this altar. In the community sent forth into the world. In the communion of saints, past, present, and yet to come. In the presence of the Holy Spirit among us, God is present. God keeps promises. God loves us and will not go away no matter what we do. God is ready and waiting for us to rejoin the one who loves us more than life itself. Amen.